Our first story today is by one of my favorite authors, Alexander Carver. It's a work of fiction, and I think Alexander does a really great job of writing the humor and the caustic humor of my generation. You know, people who are in between Generation X and the millennials. And I think he also does a great job of representing, you know, like the Northeast kind of feel. He's originally from the Philadelphia area. He's relocated to uh, California, where he lives with his wife and daughter. But he keeps the flavor of the Philadelphia area, and I think he does it well. And his, here's, here's his story, A Brief Interlude with Death. A Brief Interlude with Death. Fiction by Alexander Carver. Misadventures begin simply enough. You meet a stranger who leads you down a path you never would have gone down if left to your own devices. A path from which, if you're not prepared to fight the roaring demons you encounter there, you may never return. During a brutal heat wave in August of such and such a year, I met an attractive woman at a blues club in Santa Monica. We'll say her name was Daphne, although I've forgotten her real name. I chose Daphne because that was the name my sister's best friend in high school, who, either due to natural instincts or my sister's influence over her, had wanted nothing to do with me, though I batted my eyes blind at her. The truth is, I have no talent for remembering attractive women's names when I meet them for the first time. I remember eyes, lips, hair, legs, and after the initial excitement over their physical beauty has subsided, the things that made them laugh. A name is just a name is just a name. Susan, Lisa, Beth, Jane, Karen, Daphne. For me, it's the colors, shapes, sense of a woman that remain in my mind and distract me from being able to remember their names. I'd begun that Friday evening alone inside my Santa Monica apartment, drinking a bottle of wine while watching the movie Sideways. It's a favorite flick, and due to its many vineyard landscapes and popping corpse, a perfect companion for wine drinking. When the movie was over and the bottle was empty, I hopped my rusty old mountain bike and pedaled west towards the neighboring Pacific Ocean, and more specifically, the Bulldog Pub, located a few blocks away from the tourist-riddled Santa Monica Pier. Once there, I increased my blood alcohol ratio with several pints of harp, while shooting darts with one of the other regulars, a tall black guy named Leon, who always insisted on coaching me. After losing two games of cricket to Leon and receiving a lecture on arm angles and release points, I lingered at the bar for a bit, attempting to win over an Asian beauty from a younger generation, sporting a faded Obama Hope t-shirt. But while honing in on our shared liberalism, as a point of convergence, I inadvertently gave away my age by mentioning that I'd voted for President Clinton, twice, and the attempt imploded right along with the Clinton legacy. Leaving the pub around midnight, I pedaled home along the usual bar-line route. It was a good way to wind down an evening, giving up on the possibility of romance little by little, as I stuck my head in one bar after the other, hoping to spot someone who might make the night the week, or maybe even the month, a little more interesting. On 4th Street, I decided to pop into Harville's, a happening blues club where white people with rhythm, or at least an appreciation of rhythm, 
Go to listen to great black musicians tell sad stories to their roaring instruments. Entering the club, I snuck past the fedora-topped doorman collecting the $10 cover charge, who was busy working on a redhead. At the bar, I ordered a 7 and 7, and then pushed my way through the mostly middle-aged crowd to the back of the club to watch the thundering six-piece band. Being one of those people who gets almost as much pleasure out of feeling pain as I do joy, I've always loved the blues. All the seats at the little round tables were taken by those who'd planned their evening around Harville's, so I wedged myself into a spot against the wall next to an attractive, full-bodied blonde woman. After shooting me a flirtatious glance or two, the blonde woman, overdressed in a silky black cocktail dress with gold-fringed neckline, tapped me on the shoulder and said, I just told my sister, you look like Superman. Thanks, I said, smiling toothily at her. But trust me, I'm a lot more like Clark Kent than Superman. She laughed the way people do when they don't get the joke, her eyes moving around searchingly as she tried to grasp my meaning. Sporting round tortoiseshell glasses and wavy dark hair that hangs over my forehead, my appearance sometime conjures up thoughts of Superman. Maybe I even foster the look a little bit. The Clark Kent line is my standard self-depreciating reply whenever I receive the compliment. It's usually met with a laugh, sometimes confusion. Obviously, I like it when women say I look like Superman, even though it's an impossible first impression to live up to. Are you here by yourself? she asked, after a couple more minutes had passed and the band's song had ended. Uh, yeah. I was with a bunch of friends earlier, but I got bored and decided to venture off by myself, I said, knowing that most women were doubtful of the social value of anyone not in the company of others on a Friday night. Well, you can hang with us if you want to, she said. Okay, maybe I will. Thanks, I said, scanning the faces of the people standing next to her to try and figure out who was us. My name's Aaron, by the way. Not Clark? <laughs> no, not Clark. I wish. I'm Daphne. Nice to meet you, Daphne. You look great tonight, by the way. I love that dress. It's very fancy. Thanks. I know, I'm totally overdressed, right? We were just at this stupid benefit thing my sister dragged me to. Oh, this is my sister, Gwen, and her boyfriend, David, she said, spinning towards an older, less attractive version of herself, standing beside a guy with thinning blonde hair strategically arranged across his head to cover as much scalp as possible. Guys, I'd like you to meet Superman. We exchanged brief greetings, and I could tell by the curdled expression on David's pale, deeply lined face that he wasn't too excited about my entrance into the second act of his evening. Maybe he had a thing for his girlfriend's little sister and didn't like that she'd introduced me as the Man of Steel. As the band played on, the four of us stood shoulder to shoulder against the brick wall, nodding our heads to the beat. The saxophone player absorbed most of our attention and enthusiastic side comments as he belted out his piercing, laconic notes. As time passed and our interest in the music faded, Daphne and I took turns hollering our biographies back and forth into each other's ears. I mentioned the TV show I was writing for, and my frustration working with a team of other brilliant writers hell-bent on ensuring that their work was produced and not mine. 
She told me she worked in real estate, in an office with her sister and hated it, and wanted to do something more exciting with her life. She said she loved writing stories as a child, and I got the feeling she was hinting that she'd like me to get her a job working on the show. I've met a lot of people that think anyone can just jump into a writing career the way you might jump into a job delivering pizza. No experience necessary. All you need is a car. But my annoyance with what she was saying was blunted by my appreciation for how she was saying it. As she spoke, she constantly squeezed the bicep of my left arm to emphasize a point she was making. The way sensual women sometimes do when they want to communicate directly with your libido. Her breathy voice in my ear seemed a bit overdone, too. But I liked it so much, I let her do most of the talking. The blues band finished playing a little after 1.30, and the four of us filed out of the bar and onto the sidewalk with the rest of the still-up-for-anything crowd. Why don't you come hang out at my sister's place, Daphne said, hooking her arm through mine as we headed towards the car. We've got plenty of beer, and we're thinking of grilling up some late-night burgers. I'd promised myself after I'd broken up with Rachel, that with my hard-earned freedom and the extra time it afforded me, I would pursue every experience to its natural conclusion. I would never turn down an invitation to go anywhere or do anything for fear of missing out on an unusual happening or an extraordinary event that I could cash in on someday. That sounds like fun. I'd love to, I told Daphne. Oh, thank God. Superman's coming over to save us from our boring selves, David said, overhearing our conversation from a few feet behind us. I turned around and smiled at David. He didn't smile back. Do you need a ride, or will you be flying over, he said, stepping off the curb to manually unlock a Volvo station wagon featuring a badly decaying Carrie Edwards 04 bumper sticker. I think I'm just going to ride my bike, I said. I'm a little too tipsy to fly. There was no way I was going to get into a drunk, antagonistic guy's car. So I asked for their address in Venice Beach and told them I'd meet them there. My excuse was that I didn't feel comfortable leaving my brand new bicycle behind, locked up on a sketchy street. The street it was on wasn't sketchy at all. And it was an old bike, not a new one. But since the bike was out of view, it could be any age on any street it wanted to be. The ranch house Gwen and David rented was wedged in between two better-lit, better-maintained, two-story homes. When I arrived, that was in upstate New York. Krypton blew up when I was an infant, remember? More laughter, which this time I initiated. So what would Superman like to drink? David said, still on his feet, standing by the kitchen doorway. We've got beer, wine, and some stuff to mix with vodka. Beer sounds great, I said. Thank you. Stella or Corona, he asked. Stella, please. In a bottle or in a glass? In a glass would be great. Thank you. A tall, narrow glass or a short, wide one? Gwen giggled and took a sip of her Corona. Ha ha ha, a tall one would be perfect. And would you like a glass made of lead or one you can see through? Daphne giggled too, lifted her head off my shoulder and looked into my eyes to see how I was handling David's 20 questions. I guess it would be nice to see through it if I have the option, I said. 
You have the option, David said. We like to accommodate all our superheroes that come over to the house. David, just get the man a fucking beer, Daphne said, noting my growing frustration. You do look like Superman, David said, and you look like Lex Luthor, I said, too intoxicated to resist. I do, don't I? David said, smiling out of one side of his mouth. Why? Because I'm balding? Was that supposed to be a bald joke? No, I wasn't kidding around. Wow. Does Superman possess a superhuman sense of humor too, he said. Just get him a fucking Stella, Daphne said. He's sitting there without a fucking beer. Instead of retreating, David advanced. Hey, we can't all have perfect hair like you do, Superman, he said, reaching down and grabbing a fistful of my hair. Look at all this luscious, wind-blown hair. Please, get off of me, I said, jerking my head away from his hand. There's nothing more enraging than being touched by someone you don't like. David, stop being a prick and get Superman his fucking beer, Gwen said followed by a fit of inexplicable laughter. David saluted Gwen, turned on his heel, and marched into the kitchen, humming, Hail to the Chief, as he went. There was the sound of several bottles clanking in the refrigerator, and a bottle top being popped and hitting the floor. I smiled at Daphne and then at Gwen, but no one said anything while David was out of the room. When he returned, he handed me a cold bottle of Corona. Sorry, I forgot what your order was, Superman, he said, plopping down on the couch between Daphne and me and throwing his arms around us. My name's Aaron, I said, sliding away from him. Come over here, David, Gwen said, lunging forward, grabbing him by the belt and pulling him to the other couch on top of her. Okay, who wants burgers, David said, leaping up and prancing back into the kitchen. Burgers, Gwen yelled, following closely behind him. There's an onion in the bottom drawer of the fridge. I'll chop it up. I'll get the mushrooms. Left alone with Daphne and feeling as distant from her as I've felt from any woman in my life, I racked my brain, trying to think of something to talk about. I was beginning to wonder if I was the butt of that night's joke, imagining that every Friday night, the three of them went out for drinks, selected a stranger in a club, and brought him back to the house to be ridiculed. Maybe the last guy they had over bore a striking resemblance to Justin Bieber. So I take it you guys are all meat eaters? I finally said to Daphne, whose head was back on my shoulder. Yeah, why? Is Superman a vegetarian? Gwen yelled from the kitchen, Superman's a vegetarian? No. I'll eat anything you put in front of me, I said. Anything, Daphne said. Anything, David repeated, with the accompaniment of a chopping blade. Sure. Do you like brownies? Daphne asked. Brownies? Of course, I love them. She laughed at my enthusiasm, kissed me hard on the mouth, and went into the kitchen with the others. I watched the three of them through the kitchen doorway, busy with food preparation, making a big dinner in the middle of the night. When Daphne returned, she was holding a cheap paper plate with two round brownies on it. Wow, they're round, I said, examining my brownie before biting into it. Where I come from, they're usually square. My sister made them. She likes them round. 
The brownies tasted strange. They were also harder and less chewy than the ones I'd had in the past, as if Gwen had added a pinch of sawdust to the batter. I learned a long time ago that when something tastes funny, you should spit it out. But I didn't spit out the brownie. In fact, I ate the whole thing, and the last bite of Daphne's too. Don't forget, I was going along with the course of the evening, hoping to learn things about these people in their lives that I could use someday, while also hoping to get laid. Soon, David and Gwen brought out the burgers on the same cheap paper plates I'd been served my brownie. They were out of hamburger buns, Gwen said, so they served the square, badly burned patties on a crumbling white bread with tomatoes, lettuce, chopped onions, and tiny mushrooms piled high on top. The heaping contents covered in a tangy sauce, something akin to barbecue sauce, which also tasted a bit strange. After our 3 a.m. meal, we all smoked from the two-foot purple bong on the coffee table, and then David and Gwen crashed and headed off to bed. As David stumbled out of the living room, he left us with these parting words. Have fun, you two. In Daphne, please let us know if Superman lives up to his name. Daphne and I remained on the couch, scrounging through each other's minds, trying to find a common interest. For anyone attempting to engage in a one-night stand, discovering a common interest is an essential element to moving the relationship forward from conversing to fondling. As Daphne's head continued to rest on my shoulder, she mentioned something about how she'd stopped eating Doritos, and I remembered thinking that this was not a woman I wanted to pursue beyond daylight. I was even hoping she would remove her head from my shoulder. The intimacy of it, with her hair touching my neck, felt odd between strangers. Like someone sitting next to you on an airplane and falling asleep and inadvertently using your shoulder as a pillow. Eventually, the conversation ran dry, and Daphne raised her lips to mine to cover the awkward silence with a barrage of kisses. Later, I remember Daphne pulling me into a walk-in closet-sized room somewhere along the hallway of the house, and the two of us plopping down on top of a blow-up mattress made for only one person. I remember more groping on the squeaky mattress and the brief appearance of one of her breasts. I remember lying my head down on the throw pillow made of stone and closing my eyes and then waking up with a start, my face and chest covered in sweat, my mind racing like it had never raced before. I remember feeling blindly around the dark room for my glasses and my boots, apologizing to Daphne for not feeling well and needing to go home, and then saying goodbye to her as she laid there on that blow-up mattress, half inflated with air. It must have taken me 20 minutes to execute the three-number combination to unlock my bicycle from the stop sign outside their house. The right side of my body felt heavier than the left, and as I attempted to mount the bike and push away from the curb, I capsized with a violent crash into the street. The bruises running down my right shoulder and hip were there the next morning to confirm what my cloudy brain could not. My next attempt to mount and steer the bicycle must have been successful because soon I became aware that I was pedaling through the scorching night air, fully absorbed with the terrifying thoughts rushing through my head, attacking me in cycles like fighter planes, shooting their missiles, circling round behind the mountains and returning to fire again. The pattern went like this. I drift off into my thoughts for 30 seconds, 
then remember in a flash of panic that I was riding my bicycle, return momentarily to my body, and feel my feet pedaling as I raced down the dimly lit streets. As the cycle repeated itself, seemingly in equal intervals of time, I tried to concentrate on staying inside my body, but discovered I was no longer running things, and that the goal of getting home safely was about as difficult and dangerous a mission as landing a spacecraft on the moon. Clearly, I was tripping, something I'd never done before, and the journey home seemed to last a hundred nights. Looking back on the scene, I played out at David and Gwen's little house of hell. I was curious as to just how many drugs I consumed and what specifically those drugs were. The pot I take full responsibility for. I smoked it willingly when it was passed my way, taking two puffs from the bong. One, a mighty one that drew cheers. I'm sure the round brownies were also laced with pot. Daphine seemed to indicate that fact without saying so. Though I do find it odd that a verbal warning was withheld. So the big question is, was it the pot alone that overpowered me, or were the mushrooms in the burger of a hallucinogenic nature as well? I seem to remember David punching the word mushrooms the same way Daphine had punched the word brownies, as if to indicate a superior quality. And whether the secret sauce in the burgers was laced with LSD, PCP, or just MSG, I guess we'll never know. The miracle is that despite all the ghosts and goblins escorting me home, doing figure eights inside my head, I still managed to find my way back to my apartment. A half-hour ride in the real world, an endless summer in the world of psychedelic drugs. By the time I reached my apartment in Santa Monica, I was convinced that whatever those people slipped me had done irreversible damage to my brain. I'd known an actor whose brother had never returned from wherever a tab of bad acid had taken him. Inside my second-floor apartment, I locked the door to the bedroom, lowered myself onto the bed, and with the light still on, quietly willed my paranoid thoughts to go away. But the 30-second intervals of hallucinations continued, and the horror of thinking that my brain had been ruined by Lex Luthor caused me to leap up from the bed and seek out the help of a friend. I carefully took out my cell phone and called John, an actor who was my closest friend in Los Angeles. John lived in Burbank with his wife and two-year-old son, a good 30-minute drive away, but he was the person I felt least guilty about inconveniencing at four o'clock in the morning. I'd written a TV pilot for him about his childhood growing up, living over his family's comedy club, and he owed me a big favor. After four rings, the call went to voicemail, and I left a long, rambling message detailing the events of the evening and mentioning what drugs I may or may not have taken and the horrifying effect they were having on my brain. John later told me that I repeated the phrase, something terrible is happening to my brain, over and over again. After leaving the message, I endured yet another hallucination and then called John two more times leaving two more messages, asking him to please come out to Santa Monica, ASAP. I would not hear from John until three o'clock the following afternoon, when he called to say that he hadn't checked his messages until after he'd gotten back from lunch. He expressed his deepest concern and apologized for having slept through what sounded like a terrifying ordeal. Although, in Burbank, a couple of months later, while I was attending his wife Taylor's 30th birthday party, 
She let it slip to me in the kitchen that John had listened to my messages in the middle of the night, but was too afraid of the demonically possessed man who'd left them to try and save him from whatever disaster he was facing. I thought that was probably the case, knowing John's fear-based personality, but it was nice to have it confirmed by his wife over a non-alcoholic beer. After giving up on John coming to my rescue, I did something that would have been unthinkable under any other circumstances. I called my ex-girlfriend, Rachel. I hadn't spoken to her in over a year since I'd stormed out of the front door of the house we were renting in Redondo Beach. Not surprisingly, she too did not pick up the phone. But it was a blessing because in my drug-induced state, I seemed to think that everything that had happened between us was completely my fault and that I was lost and floundering without her and needed her back in my life immediately. At least, that's what I remember hearing myself saying into the phone while leaving a sobbing message that would certainly have led to a reconciliation and more time spent in captivity. Luckily, the message detailing what a good and stable person she was and what a bad and unstable person I was extended past the allotted time her Verizon phone provides for rambling messages, and a mechanical voice came on the line instructing me that I had a couple options with which to either save or destroy my future. If I was satisfied with my message, I should press 1 to send it, or if I was unsatisfied with it, I should press 2 to erase and re-record it. I took a moment to consider my options, and miraculously, in my psychedelic state, had a sense of the repercussions of pressing 1, pressed 2, and ended the call. Rachel didn't call me back the next day, or any day thereafter, to find out why I had called her in the wee hours of the night. Deciding to put away my phone, I then took a long shower to try to wash the drugs out of my brain with lots of shampoo and water. I must have shampooed my hair four or five times because the next day, when I went to take another shower, the bottle of finesse was empty. After the hot shower, the drug's effect must have heightened or changed course because my paranoia grew into a sudden conviction that I was about to die. I became fixated with what I perceived as the faint beats of my heart, terrified that the last seconds of my life were quietly ticking away. Quickly conceiving a mayday plan, I punched open the screen door to my apartment, walked the short distance between my apartment and my neighbor Matt's, and knocked on the peeling brown paint of his door. After a dozen or so knocks, Matt appeared in the doorway, looking both sleepy and alarmed. Hi, Aaron, what's up? What time is it? He said, blocking the glaring security light from across the courtyard with the back of his hand. Hey, Matt. Sorry to wake you, but I have this horrifying feeling that I'm about to die, and I wondered if you had a few minutes to talk. Oh my gosh, why do you think you're about to die, he asked. Well, I think these people I don't know fed me drugs tonight, and whatever they fed me is really messing with my mind and my heart right now. Hold on a second, hold on. You're probably just tripping. I've coached a friend through this before. Don't worry, you're going to be fine. You're not going to die right now. It's just the drugs working on you. Let me throw on some clothes, and I'll come over to your place and talk you through it. Go home. I'll be over there in a second. Okay, thank you. I'll be waiting for you at my place. Thank you very much, Matt. 
Expecting to be dead by the time he arrived, I went back into my apartment, sat down on the leather couch, took my cell phone and wallet out of my pockets, and holding them tightly in my lap, waited for death to come. A few minutes later, Matt opened the screen door without knocking and proceeded to move around the apartment, turning on all the lights in the living room, bedroom, and kitchen. When he finished with the lights, he walked over to where I was sitting on the couch and sat down across from me on top of the glass coffee table. Be careful, that's glass, I yelled as he was bending his legs to sit. Don't worry, it's not going to break. Everything's going to be fine, he said in a slow, measured tone that was a departure from his normally fast-paced, I have all the answers and you have none of them, manner of talking. Listen, I said, there's a good chance that in the next few minutes, I'm not going to be around anymore. You're going to be around. You're just, just listen to me, please. I'm running out of time. I can feel the beats of my heart winding down. I was just wondering if you could do me a big favor after I'm gone, I said, bringing up the contact list in my phone. Could you please call all of these people, beginning with my parents, listen to their mom and dad, and let them know that I love them and tell them, thank you for giving me such a wonderful life. Aaron, you're not going to die right now. I guarantee it, he said. But if somehow something does happen to you, then yes, I'll let everyone know how much you love them and how much you appreciate their contributions to your life. No, please say this. Aaron said he loves you and wants to thank you for helping him to give him such a wonderful life. I like the wonderful life part because it reminds me of that Christmas movie. Okay, I'll say that. Thanks. The password to get into my phone is 1720. 17 was my baseball number in college. 20 was my baseball number in high school. Should I write it down? No, I've got it. I've got a good memory for numbers. Okay, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate your doing this for me, I said, sticking my hand out in what Matt later called a gentlemanly fashion that he found touching under the circumstances. Why don't you go into the kitchen and make us some coffee, he said. I don't have any coffee, I'm sorry. All I have is cinnamon tea. Well then, why don't I go into the kitchen and make us some cinnamon tea? That sounds good. I like a lot of sugar in mine. Okay, I'll put a lot of sugar in yours. Thank you. Thanks again for everything, Matt. Happy to help out. I turned my head and watched Matt walk into the kitchen and go about the business of making tea. Under the bright overhead lights, his gaunt face, rarely blinking blue eyes, and white sleep-tossled hair combined to create a sinister appearance. And suddenly, I felt like I was seeing him for the first time for who he truly was. So it's true, I thought. When it's our time to die, we're visited by an agent of darkness in human form who ushers us into the next world. And to my surprise and horror, he'd been living in the apartment next door, biding his time until I made a mistake and opened myself up for the taking. Uh, hey, Matt, I'm feeling a bit better now, I said, turning my face away from the kitchen doorway. Why don't you go home and get some more sleep? I feel terrible about keeping you up. Oh, it's no problem. I don't mind. We'll have some tea and a little chat. And before you know it, the sun will be up, he said. Well, you know what? I don't really feel like chatting right now. But feel free to pour yourself some tea in any mug you like and take it back to your place with you. You can keep the mug too. I've got tons of mugs. 
Take any mug you want. No. I think it's better if I stay here and we drink our tea together. A glass of tea will be good to calm you down. Besides, I'm awake now. I couldn't fall back asleep if I tried. Matt appeared in the kitchen doorway holding two steaming mugs of tea. One mug had the Philadelphia Phillies logo on it. And the other one, a mug I'd bought after my breakup with Rachel, had the words, me boss, you not, printed on it. What is this, Matt? What are you really doing here? I blurted out as he approached me with the steaming mugs. What do you mean? He said, sitting back down on the glass coffee table. Did you really come here to make me tea? Or are you here for another reason? I'm here to help guide you through your altered state, Aaron. Guide me through my altered state? What is that, code for something? No, not at all. You're who I think you are, aren't you? I said, leaning back against the sofa to examine his mysterious face. I don't know. Who do you think I am? The gentleman who came to take me away. He laughed. Aaron, trust me. I'm not the gentleman who came to take you away. You're death, Matt. I can see that very clearly now. No, I'm just Matt, your next-door neighbor. You took drugs tonight, and then you knocked on my door and asked me to help guide you through an episode. An episode? Yes, an episode. I don't care for that terminology, an episode. He was still holding the mugs, which were no longer steaming. I lunged forward, grabbed the mugs out of his hand, raced to the kitchen, and dumped their contents into the sink. When I turned around, Matt was standing by the stove watching me. He moved quickly. I'd never noticed that before. I don't want tea. If I'm going to die tonight, it's not going to be because I drank tea. Fine, but you're not going to die tonight, I promise. How do you know that? How do you know so much about when I'm going to die, I said. I don't. I just know that it's not going to happen tonight while I'm here with you, in the safety of your own home. Oh, yeah? Then when's it going to happen? What are you going to do? Take me outside into the dark alley and do it there? I'm not here to hurt you, Aaron. I'm here to help you. I leaned forward and studied his face again. Up close, it looked a little less menacing than it did from far away. You promise me you're not here to hurt me? You're not deaf? I'm not him. Do you see me wearing a black hood and carrying a sickle? No, I don't. Well, then you've got nothing to worry about. Now, why don't we both go back into the other room, sit down, relax, and try to watch some TV? TV? Okay. I'd be willing to try that. He led me into the living room, grabbed the remote control off the arm of the couch, and flipped on the TV. MSNBC, my favorite cable news channel, flashed on, along with a smiling still shot of Donald Trump and an audio recording of his voice. Could we watch something else, please, I said. Of course. Matt changed the channel to ESPN. And as he watched the highlights of the Dodgers game, I watched him watching the highlights. Eventually dawn broke, and I began to nod off. The hallucinations had finally stopped and been replaced by horrible stomach cramps, a product of the mushrooms I'd likely ingested. A friend more familiar with drugs later told me. Matt nodded off too, in the reading chair next to me. And when he woke up, I told him I was ready for bed and that he should feel free to go to his home whenever he wanted. We both stood up, and he gave me a hug that implied a lack of deodorant, and I thanked him for seeing me through the night. 
He headed out the door, and I studied him as he walked along our shared terrace and slipped back inside his apartment, greeting Binky, his black-and-white cat, in kitten talk as he entered. With Matt gone, I locked the bolt to the front door, walked into the bedroom, and locked that door as well. Still jolted by the image of his sinister face under the kitchen lights, I assumed he'd be back someday to take me to the place I was destined to go. Maybe not in the form of my next-door neighbor, but certainly in the form of someone I knew and trusted. He'd be the last person I'd expect it to be. That said, I was glad to know who to look for now, and relieved that this time I'd broken his will and escaped his wrath to live a longer and more productive life. I was also thankful for the drugs and the strangers who'd fed them to me, for allowing me to know just how death would creep up on me one day so that I would be less afraid of him the next time he appeared and more willing to accept the inevitable fate he'd come to deliver. Although, my thankfulness did not prevent me from egging their house the next time I found myself shit-faced after dark in Venice Beach. Our next piece is poetry by my favorite contemporary author, Dave Newman. Dave Newman is an author who's written many books and short stories and poems, He writes out of Pittsburgh. He's a creative writing professor. And his work deals with the working class and Pittsburgh and what it's like growing up working class in Pittsburgh and living in Pittsburgh as a working class person. Why he's not already a household name, I don't know. But I believe that he will be in the future. Here is America Ends Every Day, a poem by Dave Newman. America ends every day for someone In the speedway, a woman has 96 cents on a bill of $1.01, and the cashier looks at her like, what the fuck? At the gas station pump, a man slides his card into the reader, and the reader declines his card. He drives to work on fumes, wondering how he'll drive home. Across the street, a cop pulls a kid from a primered Ford Mustang because the kid either smells like marijuana where the cop gets his jollies, beating up on poor kids. The cop was a poor kid. He skipped college because he didn't want the student loans, so the police academy excluded him because he lacked a degree. And now he makes 24 grand a year and uses the cop car like a personal vehicle because he doesn't own a personal vehicle and his wife wants to move to a bigger apartment because she's pregnant. It's not the cop's baby, but the cop doesn't know that Because his wife fell out of love with him last year and quit talking to him and started sleeping with her old high school boyfriend who works most weekends at his family's pizzeria but can get away during the weekdays to screw. The cop smashes the teenager over the hood of his cop car. The kid screams, I know my rights, you fucking pig. And the cop bashes him again. Someone films the whole thing. When the cop notices the woman with her camera, she turns and runs. Another woman sees the clip on a screen and says, Cops are disgusting. She has a pretty good job, and her husband has a pretty good job. And she never thinks America ends a little every day. After work sometimes, she jogs or does yoga. Her husband sees the clip and says, I don't know. Maybe the cop was just doing his job. And she says, Don't be stupid. Cops are disgusting. A cop breaking up a domestic dispute who has never beaten anyone Here's some version of Cops Are Disgusting almost every day. And even though he realizes he made the wrong choice when he majored in criminal justice, 
He also knows he was 20 years old and a first-time college student at a branch campus, and he needed a major because you need a major to get a job, and you need a job to be alive in the world without guilt. Sometimes he leaves his gun in the car, even though it's against protocol. The man who supposedly hit the woman leans against the cop car, his hands cuffed behind his back. The woman who called the cops wears Christmas pajama bottoms in July and an old ribbed tank top and no bra so her boobs slosh around as she motherfucks the cop into oblivion. She keeps coming, finger pointed. The cop says, would you like me to take you to jail too? Even though he has no intention of taking her to jail and plans to uncuff her boyfriend any second. The woman says, I'd like to see you fucking try, you pig. And she sprints across the yard like she's going to throw a punch. But instead, she spits in the cop's face. Look at yourself, she says. You're disgusting. If you'd like to have your short story or essay featured on the podcast, you can submit it at jnewbooks.com. We have a weekly contest, and we also have a free submission if you just want to submit to have your story or essay read. Thanks for listening.